Welcome back to the Anti-Social Studies Podcast, a place for people who wish they'd stayed awake in high school. Last time, we explored the modern era in the East. China got addicted to drugs and then freaked out. Russia and the Ottomans gave their people a taste of modernization, but not enough to make them happy. And Japan basically crushed it. But all 10 episodes up until now have just been for fun. Now we're getting to the good stuff, because we're in the 20th century. This stuff 100% matters for your life, whether you like it or not. So buckle up. We have four whole episodes dedicated to just 100 years. So let's figure out why the world is the way it is today. Today we're going to look at World War I, or the war to cause all wars. There will be acronyms, accidental hijinks that get an archduke killed, trench foot, and a really pissed off Germany. That can't be good. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1. The Main Causes of World War I By the early 1900s, Europe is solidly in charge of the world, thanks to a few hundred years of challenging authority, innovating, conquering, subjugating, and industrializing. But now they've hit a snag, because they're running out of land to conquer. It's like the original first world problem. Also, this whole balance of power thing that was created after Napoleon isn't working so well anymore. Some new powers are rising, like Germany, and shaking things up. But also, all of the European countries want to be on top. They don't really want to balance the power. They're just saying that so they don't look like jerks. Basically, the early 1900s is like that point in Survivor when your alliance easily has the numbers to keep voting off the Umgugu tribe or whatever. But then you look around and realize that after the other tribe is gone, you're going to have to start voting each other off. And you don't want to get blindsided. So maybe you should do the blindsiding? Is that crazy? Am I crazy? It seems crazy. The power alliance always turns on each other, and some rando who had three lines all season ends up winning because all their friends are on the jury. That's the U.S., by the way. We're the rando in this situation. Anyway, even though I think that my survivor analogy is a perfectly comprehensive analysis of the causes of World War I, my producers tell me it's not. So, In general, there are four main causes of World War I, and it's adorable because the causes actually spell out the word main. These are the moments that history teachers live for. By the way, are you sitting in your car wondering, does she really have producers? I mean, the show's pretty good if it's just like her in her kitchen while her baby's asleep, but if this is like a professional thing that I may have to rethink my expectations. Don't worry, it's the first one. So the first long-term cause of World War I is militarism. As industrialization advanced, so did military technology. The size and strength of the various European militaries grew exponentially, especially in Germany, and this freaked everyone out. Britain had been dominating the world militarily for a few hundred years, but here comes Germany pulling a full Napoleon and throwing off that balance of power. For example, in the decades before the war, Germany's military spending increased by 158%. But it wasn't just them. Austria-Hungary increased by 160%, and Britain's military increased by 117%. So why were they building these massive militaries? Imperialism. It's another letter in the acronym. Imperial powers needed a huge military to control their expanding borders and to keep order in places where they were now asserting full, direct control, like Africa. This is something that has happened forever in world history. The Romans needed more soldiers to control the newly conquered land. But remember, they promised to pay their soldiers in land, so they then needed more land to make the new soldiers happy, and so on and so on. And unfortunately, the most common reason why empires fall is because they overextend themselves— 
It happened in the classical era with the Romans and the Han, and it's going to happen now with Europe. Competition over land around the globe and looming militaries just on the other side of the border created tension across Europe. But also, it created a weird incentive to go to war. European powers saw that if they were to win a war against another major power, they would get their colonies. And they all believed that if a war were to happen, their side would obviously win easily because of those massive militaries I just talked about. Basically, a lot of countries across Europe have something to prove. Austria wants to expand into the newly independent Balkans. We'll talk about that more in a second. France wants to get back land it lost to Germany in the Franco-Prussian War. The German Kaiser wants to prove his military strength and quash civil unrest at home, thanks to a rising social, socialist movement started by Karl Marx. And Russia is pretty embarrassed that it just lost a war to Japan. And the Tsar also figures that a war might help let out some of the pent-up anger and frustration of those peasants. <laughs> Ooh, boy, was he wrong about that one. It's not that anyone openly wants war, but when the opportunity arises, a lot of countries will jump into war more quickly than they would have otherwise. This plays into the last two letters from our main causes of the war. Nationalism is reaching its global peak in the early 1900s. Thanks to centuries of unified nation-states and competition, plus an unfortunate dose of a scientific superiority complex, European states believe they are unstoppable. And to be fair, they sort of are. If they would just not fight amongst themselves. Again, it's Survivor 101. If all the strong surfer dudes just made an alliance and stuck with it, they would make it to the end. But in walks Parvati with a rice bowl full of male ego to break everything up. Y'all really should be watching Survivor. It's incredible. All of this nationalist sentiment, plus the tensions from imperial competition and huge threatening militaries, scares everyone into developing alliances. In the late 1800s, countries start tying themselves together in the hopes that no one would ever risk going to war because it would mean dragging all of Europe into the fight. And it's a good plan if you're so egotistical that you forget about everyone except for the big guys. And they are. So they do. What they didn't consider was a smaller actor who didn't care about risking imperial land holdings because they don't have any, or didn't care about bringing down European powerhouses. In fact, to a little guy who's about to be conquered and subjugated, a world war might be just the thing he needs. Enter Gavrilo Princip. Okay, first, where and what is Serbia? All right, southeastern Europe is generally referred to as the Balkans. Today, it makes up the countries of Albania, Bosnia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Macedonia, remember the place where Alexander the Great was from, and Serbia, among others. This region had been conquered by the Ottomans since the 1300s, but now that the Ottoman Empire is limping along, they have become independent by virtue of the Ottomans being the, quote, sick man of Europe. But there's another empire to the north, Austria-Hungary, that wants to grab up this land for itself. And they do. There's a fledgling country called Serbia that is trying to assert its independence, but the shadow of the Austro-Hungarian Empire is looming large. This Austro-Hungarian Empire is the remnants of the Holy Roman Empire, and they've built up a massive industrialized military, and they've already started conquering places like Bosnia, which happens to have a large ethnic Serbian population that would like to be a part of Serbia, please. Anyway, adding insult to injury, the Austrians send their heir to the throne, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, to visit Bosnia on the day that commemorates the conquest of the Balkans by the Ottomans. Ouch. Meanwhile, a group of Serbian nationalists or terrorists, depending on your perspective, has formed to fight against the Austrian Empire. They're called the Black Hand, and they station multiple assassins along the parade route, where Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie will drive in an open-topped car. Never a good idea. 
The first assassin throws a bomb at the car, but instead of landing inside, it bounces off the back and explodes seconds too late. People in the crowd were killed and injured, but the Archduke got away. And that really should have been that, except. Franz Ferdinand insisted on going to the hospital to visit those injured in the bombing. His security detail, who, frankly, must not have been very good at their jobs, tried to convince him that he needed to leave Bosnia, but he refuses. His limo is driving to the hospital when the driver gets lost. We'll come back to them in a second. Meanwhile, a 19-year-old named Gavrilo Princip is frustrated. He was stationed later on the parade route with a gun, but now he won't get his chance. He thinks, mass screw it, and he wanders back into the streets of Sarajevo. Some stories say that he went to a sandwich shop and was eating. I'm honestly not sure if that's true, but for the sake of the story and our society's mutual love of the sandwich, let's just say that it is. Back to Franz Ferdinand. His driver is lost and trying to navigate the winding, narrow streets in his limo. Trying to turn around, he backs the car into an alleyway and gets stuck. It smells really good in that alleyway. They noticed, probably, I don't know. What's that smell? Could it be the scent of freshly baked bread and delicious sandwiches? That's right. Gavrila Princip is inside and hears a commotion out in the alleyway. Now, this part definitely happened. I don't know if it was a sandwich shop or not. But he walks out back and he sees none other than the Archduke and heir to the Austrian throne sitting in an open-topped car stuck in an alleyway. He holsters his sandwich, takes out his gun, and shoots both Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie at point-blank range. He tries to kill himself, but is prevented by someone in the crowd who tackled him. And then World War I happens. Wait, what? Who cares about the Austrian heir and a tiny random place called Bosnia? If you answered no one except the Austrians and the Bosnians, you are correct. So here's what happens, and listen carefully. The Black Hand was a Serbian nationalist organization, so the Austrians blame the new nation of Serbia. They deliver an ultimatum that includes that Serbia gives up its independence and becomes part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Serbia says, no thank you, so Austria declares war on Serbia. But Serbia has been talking to Russia. They're like... Hey, Russia, we're both Slavic people, and admit it, you always kind of hoped we would one day be part of your empire, right? I mean, I saw what you did in that Crimean War against the Ottomans. Don't worry, don't worry, we're not mad. We were flattered, but you don't want Austria to scoop us up first, do you? So Russia steps in to defend Serbia. But wait, because Austria has its former Holy Roman Empire roommate, Germany. They want to make sure that in a war over Eastern Europe, it's them and their BFF who win, not Russia. And Germany has a plan. Germany knows that Russia and France are allied, so they think it's inevitable that France would get involved in the war at some point. And Germany doesn't want to be fighting a war on both sides of its borders, with Russia in the east and France in the west. That would be a terrible way to fight a war. Side note, that's exactly how both the world wars will be fought. Germany looks around and thinks that France is probably the easier opponent of the two, and so they scroll through their Rolodex of military plans to ruin the 20th century and settle on the Schlieffen Plan. Basically, it goes like this. Germany will surprise invade France, win easily because, you know, France, and then be able to turn around and fight Russia on one front. It's foolproof. And what's the quickest way to invade France, you ask? Through Belgium. So Germany invades France through the neutral country of Belgium. And who has promised to stay out of the war as long as no neutral countries are threatened? Britain for 100 points. To recap, 
Austria declared war on Serbia, who got help from Russia. Germany, stepping in to support Austria, declared war on Russia, but also invaded France, Russia's ally. But they invade France through Belgium, who's protected by Great Britain. Oh, and by the way, all of this happened in one week. Seven days. So, in 1914, every major European power went to war over an archduke that only Austria really cared about. But again, they all were tense because of imperial competition, they were fired up by nationalist sentiments, and overly confident with huge militaries. They all believed that this war would last a few weeks, and they all believed they would win. And they all believed that this would be the one last conflict to finally settle once and for all who was the best European. It would be the war to end all wars. Act 2. The Great War A quick note. In 1914, no one called it World War I. Because that would be weird. They would have to be from the future and know that there was going to be a World War II. So at the time, they mostly called it the Great War. So Germany's Schlieffen plan failed, mostly because the British step in to support France and neutral Belgium. So they are stuck fighting a war on both of their borders, exactly what they were hoping to avoid. The Allies siding with Austria are called the Central Powers because if you look at a map of the fighting, well, they're in the center of it. The Allied powers are mostly made up of Russia, who handles most of the fighting along the Eastern Front, and Britain and France, who set up shop along the Western Front. The reason this event eventually gets called the First World War is because it truly was a global conflict all around the world, partly thanks to imperialism. Colonists and subjugated people often supplied troops and weapons to help their European mother countries. India, for example, sent tons of soldiers to fight for the British in the hopes that it would earn them some more freedoms as a thank you after the war was over. It wouldn't. But it also was a global conflict fought on multiple continents. We focused most of our time on the eastern and western fronts in Europe, but there was fighting on an Italian front, and more importantly for the 20th century, across the Middle East. The Ottoman Empire had entered the war on the side of Germany and Austria. They were embarrassed by how weak they'd become and hoped to side with the rising power of Germany to take down the British and the French, who had been encroaching on their territories, like when they built that Suez Canal in Egypt. Their capital of Constantinople was fairly well protected, but the British attempted to take down this massive empire from the outside by sending in their navy. But they also fuel rebellions inside the Ottoman Empire to break it up from within. The most famous of these was an Arab revolt led by charismatic desert warrior T.E. Lawrence, or Lawrence of Arabia. The British stoked the flames of Arab nationalism in an attempt to weaken the Ottomans, having no idea the ramifications it would have on Middle Eastern politics for the next century, or more, we're still living through it. Back in Europe, the war came to a screeching halt pretty early on. Here was the problem. All of the generals were old guys who had been raised and trained on traditional warfare. You meet on an open battlefield, march, march, march towards each other, kneel and shoot, and reload. Eventually you get close enough to fix bayonets, and then you meet in hand-to-hand combat. It was very rigid, formal, and gentlemanly. And it also was really stupid now that you have industrialized weapons of war. So the European generals make their plans, the soldiers travel to the open battlefields, and they start advancing toward each other. One account at the Battle of the Somme talks of a British officer walking casually in front of his men with a walking stick. What's different now? I don't know. 
machine guns. Soldiers immediately get mown down by machine gun fire, forcing them to retreat, dig a hole to get below ground, and then basically stay there for four years. And that's trench warfare. Just along the Western Front, 25,000 miles of trenches were dug over the four years of the war. The trenches protected the soldiers relatively well, but the generals back at headquarters were stumped. They had to quickly rethink every military tactic they'd ever been taught, and in the meantime, men were living in muddy, rat-infested pits. It was cold and constantly damp. Soldiers whose feet were wet for too long from staying in the trenches developed trench foot, where your skin would essentially rot off the bone. Don't Google image that, trust me. In between the trenches was no man's land. This was a huge, barren field covered with barbed wire and huge holes where bombs had been dropped. If you've seen Wonder Woman, then you know exactly what this looked like. And technology had become advanced enough to stop anyone from just marching across, but the technology wasn't good enough yet to overcome the stalemate. Over the years, a lot of the trenches became fairly sophisticated. The Germans were especially skilled at engineering trenches. The German trenches at the Somme, the epic four-month battle in France, had electricity, toilets, ventilation, and even wallpaper. But still, life was miserable in the trenches. One of the biggest concerns was soldiers losing their minds after spending months in constant fear of an attack and honestly just sheer boredom. Even though the fear of going over the top and running across the battlefield was terrifying, even worse was the prospect of being shelled. Soldiers described it as a form of torture because you're basically just sitting in your hole, constantly afraid that you might suddenly be buried alive. Soldiers were paid very little, but were plied with alcohol to overcome the brutal reality of trench warfare. If you watch Peaky Blinders, for example, Tommy Shelby suffers from a ton of addictions and psychological issues because of his time as a tunneler in World War I. In hindsight, a ton of these soldiers were clearly suffering from PTSD, but of course they didn't know what that was at the time. Many soldiers returned home from the horrors of this new industrial war and felt alienated from regular society. In the U.S., these people are sometimes referred to as the lost generation because they felt so changed and separated from their lives back home. Writer Gertrude Stein coined the phrase, but Ernest Hemingway made it famous in his book, The Sun Also Rises. Other American authors like F. Scott Fitzgerald would go on to write about the hard-drinking, fast-living, disillusioned young people of the post-war 1920s. As the generals and scientists back home worked to overcome the stalemate, the soldiers were stuck in trenches that were often just 50 yards away from the enemy. And you knew that there were always snipers waiting for someone to make a mistake and rise above ground level. There are stories of soldiers who, by the later years of the war, so desperately wanted to get sent away from the trenches that they would raise their hand into the air, knowing they would get shot off by a sniper in seconds and they would get to go back to the hospital. This proximity also made for some interesting interactions. On Christmas Eve, the first year of the war, 1914, British soldiers were in their trenches when they heard a sound coming from the other side. Across the battlefield, they hear the Germans singing Silent Night. Some of the British troops join in, and eventually they leave the trenches and meet the Germans in the middle. One of the British troops brought a soccer ball, and they played a game on no man's land. This is known as the Christmas Truce of World War I, and eventually their commanding officers force them to go back to the trenches or risk a court-martial. And the next day, the war continued. Eventually, military technology did catch up, and the trench stalemate was broken. Even though they didn't have Wonder Woman's shield or bracelets, scientists developed tanks to cross no-man's land better protected. Now, these tanks were terrible. 
At full throttle, they went four miles per hour, and they often got stuck in the mud or the enemy's trenches. But it was better than running across the battlefield without a tank. Both sides used early airplanes and blimps, but mostly for surveillance. They could fly over the enemy trenches to see where they were amassing troops so that they could warn their soldiers on the ground to be ready. But probably the most infamous military technology used in World War I was chemical warfare. Toxic smoke had been used in battle since the ancient era, but as soon as the war broke out, the Germans began developing chemical weapons. This technology was so new that the most effective way to use it was just to line up canisters along your front line, point them towards the enemy, and then wait for a breeze in the right direction. Soldiers would unscrew the caps, and chlorine gas would waft across no man's land. God forbid the wind should change. I always equate this to that scene in the second Hunger Games, because of course, when Katniss is asleep in the jungle and she sees that hazy mist coming towards her. Not knowing what it is, she reaches out and touches it and it burns her skin. Again, Susan Collins just plagiarizing from history. Early on, there were no defenses against chemical weapons. Some soldiers discovered that breathing through a wet cloth could help prevent the gas from entering your lungs, and so they would pour water or urinate into rags and cover their mouths. Yuck, war is hell, y'all. Eventually, defensive technology caught up, and soldiers were issued gas masks. At the end of the war, more than 100,000 tons of chemical weapon agents were used, injuring 500,000 and killing 30,000. In 1925, the Geneva Protocol banned the use of chemical weapons in war, although it'll be used occasionally in other conflicts throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. So with all of this technology and stalemate, how did the war end? America! Yay! So the United States had stayed out of the war for the first few years. Woodrow Wilson campaigned on keeping us out of war. He was a college professor who envisioned a global peace. President Wilson is actually the person who coined the phrase, the war to end all wars. But two things brought the United States into the conflict. First, in 1915, a German U-boat submarine torpedoed and sank British passenger liner, the Lusitania. Over a thousand people died, including 120 Americans, which increased public pressure to enter the war against Germany. But it would be two years before the U.S. finally entered the war, although we were definitely supporting the Allies from the beginning. But in January 1917, the German Foreign Secretary, Arthur Zimmerman, wrote a secret message to the German ambassador to Mexico. Yes, that Mexico. So, y'all remember in the 1800s when the U.S. manifested its destiny all over the West? We annexed Texas and then fought the Mexican-American War that gave us everything from Albuquerque to California? Yeah, the Mexicans didn't like that so much. So the Germans proposed an alliance. They would offer significant financial aid if the Mexican government declared war on the U.S., engaging them in a conflict along the border and keeping them out of the conflict in Europe. It was a great plan. Mexico would help Germany, and when they won, they would get to take back all that land they lost. One problem. The telegram was intercepted by a British spy and published in American newspapers. Oops. This was the final straw for most Americans, and Woodrow Wilson proposed that we prepare for war the next day. Now, to be fair, U.S. troops didn't actually do a lot of fighting in World War I, at least relative to the other European powers but it was the threat of two million American troops that pushed things in favor of the Allies. Remember, everyone else had been slogging away in muddy trenches for three years, and here come the American doughboys, fresh out of the oven, hopping on ships and coming over to Europe. Knowing that they would need to strike before too many Americans can get set up in Europe, Germany made a last-ditch push on the Western Front to conquer Paris. 
They got within 50 miles, but were stopped by French, American, and Moroccan soldiers. So on November 11th, at 11.11 a.m., how cute is that? The armistice became official and fighting along the Western Front stopped. That's why November 11th is Veterans Day in the United States. But wait, what about the Eastern Front? What's been happening in Russia all this time? You remember all those times in past episodes that I said the Tsar would probably be fine? Yeah, about that. Russian Revolution. So let's remind ourselves, why are people unhappy in Russia? If you'll remember, ever since Peter the Great, Russia has been playing this balancing game between modern westernization and traditional power structures. Czars are willing to reform the economy through industrialization, social hierarchy by emancipating the serfs, and culture by shaving everyone's beard off. But they are never willing to give up their political power. And this makes sense. All of the other absolute monarchs were forced to give up their power because their government was overthrown. King George during the American Revolution, Louis XVI in France, the Shogun in Japan. And there were still absolute monarchies hanging around, most notably the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottomans in the Middle East. So Russia wasn't alone. But a few events also occurred that exacerbated this tension between the people of Russia and the Tsar. First, they lost a war to Japan in 1905. They were fighting over control of the Korean Peninsula, and the fact that the tiny Japanese defeated the mighty Russian Empire was very embarrassing. In the same year, peasants and workers marched on the Tsar's palace demanding reforms. Led by a priest named Father Gapon, the soldiers guarding the palace fired into the crowd, killing hundreds of peaceful protesters. This event was known as Bloody Sunday, not the one you two sings about, and it sparked outrage across the empire. Tsar Nicholas II responded to the Bloody Sunday fiasco of 1905 by implementing some political reforms. He allowed the formation of political parties and created an elected parliament called the Duma. Unfortunately, it was a little too little too late. The Duma was really just an advisory council. They had no real power. That still rested entirely with the Tsar. But the main event that leads to the end of the Russian Empire was World War I. Going into the war, against all advice, Tsar Nicholas appointed himself as head of the army. Why would he do this? I guess if he was confident that they would win the war, then it would be good PR for them. Unfortunately, while all the other European powers were militarizing, Russia had not invested much money at all in modern weaponry or technology. They had a ton of troops. With one and a half million troops, their army was twice as large as Germany's. So it seems like Nicholas was relying on the sheer size of his military, which might have been fine in traditional warfare, but not World War I. Nicholas left his family behind in St. Petersburg to lead the military. His wife was left in charge of the government, along with her trusty advisor. And now, for a quick second, about Rasputin. He was a Siberian peasant who became a mystic and self-proclaimed Orthodox Christian holy man. He wandered Russia until he ended up in St. Petersburg, gaining a lot of popularity and notoriety thanks to his enigmatic personality. He met the Tsar in 1905 and claimed he could help heal the heir to the throne, Alexei, who was a hemophiliac. Nicholas's wife, the Empress Alexandra, became obsessed with Rasputin, believing he was the only one who could help her son. Once in 1912, Alexei developed a hemorrhage in his thigh and was close to death. Alexandra wrote to Rasputin, who was in Siberia, and asked him to pray for her son. He responded with a letter saying, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. Within two days of receiving this reply, Alexei recovered. 
After this, he grew very influential in the Tsar's court, much to the chagrin of the elite. He was often drunk and was accused of sexual misconduct on multiple occasions. Over the years, he developed a philosophy of divine grace through group sin, something that would have seemed crazy to me before I watched the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country. Give people a weird, quiet guy with a beard and they'll do a lot of insane things. During the war, Alexandra and Rasputin were viewed with suspicion. Rasputin for obvious reasons, but also Alexandra was of Anglo-German descent and she was often accused of spying for Germany. Oh yeah, and you know how Nicholas appointed himself head of the army? That's because Rasputin claimed he had a vision that Russia would lose unless the Tsar himself took command. This caused problems because the Russian army seriously struggled in World War I. They were way less advanced than the Germans and the Austrians. By the end of the war, some soldiers were sent off into battle with fake guns because they couldn't afford to produce real ones. So there's that. Back home, people were starving as all of the food went to feed the troops. There were revolts and the military mutinied, forcing Tsar Nicholas to abdicate the throne under the advice of his generals. A new provisional government was set up in February or March of 1917, and this government allowed formerly exiled citizens to return to Russia. Enter Vladimir Lenin. By the way, I said February or March of 1917 because at this point there were like two calendars in Russia. There was the traditional like Gregorian calendar and then also the Julian calendar and their months were a little bit off. So we call these revolutions the February or March revolution and then later the October or November revolution. So that's fun. Vladimir Lenin entered St. Petersburg, now called Petrograd to make it sound more Russian and less westernized. Sorry, Peter the Great and he founded a rival government called the Petrograd Soviet. Soviet was the word for their elected councils. He called for the overthrow of the new provisional government, which had refused to leave World War I. Lenin gained popularity because he promised three simple things, peace, land, and bread. His revolution against the provisional government was led by the Bolsheviks, his communist party, but it was joined by others who just wanted something new. After they stormed the Winter Palace and took control of Russia, they signed a peace treaty with Germany, taking Russia out of World War I a year early. They also abolished private land ownership and allowed the peasants to share the land on communes, finally settling those peasant demands that started last century when Alexander emancipated the serfs. And they passed a minimum wage for workers and improved agricultural output. They also established universal health care, education, and increased women's rights. Typically, these are all things that communists do pretty well. Something communists don't do very well? Lose elections. Lenin held free and fair elections as promised, which is awesome. Except that he lost those elections, and so he invalidated them and had his Red Guard military take control of the government. So there goes that whole idea about power to the people, am I right? A civil war broke out between the communists, nicknamed the Reds, and everyone else, called the Whites. Even though the Whites were supported by the British, French, Americans, and Japanese, all hoping that they would win and bring Russian troops back into the war, the Reds won the Civil War. One of the problems was that the Whites were really disunified. They often fought amongst themselves because the only thing they could agree on was that they didn't want the communists in charge. Some Whites were monarchists who wanted to reinstate Tsar Nicholas, who's still alive at this point. Others were nationalists who wanted independence for their countries that had been conquered by the Russians, like the Czechs, for example. In an attempt to weaken the monarchists and not let him fall into enemy hands, the Bolsheviks executed the Tsar and his family in 1918. And yes, this includes his daughter, Anastasia. Believe me, no one wants the plot of the cartoon musical Anastasia to be true more than I do, but she died. Sorry. 
the execution of the Tsar and his family set off the Red Terror. Remember our anatomy of a revolution from a few episodes ago? Let's recap. People were frustrated with the old regime, so they overthrew it. A moderate provisional government rose up in its place, but some people felt like not enough had changed. Then a radical phase of the revolution comes about, only to be stopped by the rise of a strongman. Sound familiar? During the Red Terror, which would be the radical phase of the revolution, dissidents were sent off to Siberian work camps. Leon Trotsky, Lenin's right-hand man and heir apparent, held families of generals hostage so that they would stay loyal. They also conquered land in Eastern Europe and set up puppet socialist governments in the Ukraine and Belarus. These all joined together in 1922 in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or USSR. They tried to conquer Poland, but the Polish fought back and maintained their independence. For now. Lenin tried to set the economy on a right path, in his view. He actually allowed for some private enterprise. It's not very Marxist of him, but he died of a stroke in 1924. The person who Lenin wanted to take over after him was Leon Trotsky. But the person who actually takes over is Joseph Stalin. The big difference between these two guys is ideology. Trotsky wanted what he and Lenin called permanent revolution. Basically, he was more of a pure Marxist who believed that communism should be spread everywhere across the globe. So he wanted to fund communist movements around the world, especially in the recently decimated Austria and Germany. Stalin, on the other hand, was more concerned with shoring up support in the USSR. He promoted a thing called socialism in one country, which basically meant he wanted to make sure the Soviet Union was strong before they went out spreading themselves too thin. It's pretty smart, and it works. Stalin's five-year plans jump-started industrial output, turning Russia into an economic powerhouse. He also collectivized farming, making it surprisingly more efficient for a little while. This command economy where the government directs all aspects of the economy, we'll come back to bite them later, but for now, it works to bring Russia up to speed with the rest of the Western economies. But, in true strongman style, Stalin also shores up support at home by purging anyone who disagrees with him. He assassinates rivals, censors any speech that goes against his ideas, and establishes secret police, a precursor to the KGB. Anyone who spoke out was sent off to gulags, brutal work camps in Siberia, and never heard from again. Historians now have a hard time figuring out just how many people died because of Stalin, but most estimates range from 3 to 9 million people. And that's not counting all of the people who died in the 1930s and 40s during the famines. If we include those numbers, then around 50 million people died under Stalin's rule. So we've gotten a little off topic, but I wanted to make sure we all knew what was going on in Russia. The Russian Revolution of 1917 was directly caused by the death and destruction Russia saw in World War I. But what else was going on in the world after the end of the Great War? Act 4. The Effects of World War I World War I was a wake-up call for a lot of the European powers. They realized the dangers that came with imperial competition and massive military spending, and so a lot of these countries turned inward— they decided to focus their time and attention on strengthening their country and empire from within and not worry so much about what's going on in other European countries. This is fine, except that in the 1930s, when fascist dictatorships rise across Europe, a lot of countries are going to be a little too willing to ignore them. For world history, there are two huge outcomes of World War I. The first is almost never taught in schools, which is insane to me. So, when the Ottoman Empire fell apart after the war, the Allied powers, especially Britain, took control of a lot of their former territory. 
Turkey became an independent country led by a pro-Western nationalist named Ataturk, but the rest of their land becomes mandates of the British or the French. The idea was that a lot of these governments were deemed not quite ready to govern themselves, so they would be closely watched over by the Europeans until they were deemed ready to be independent. How nice of them. In the Middle East, Britain and France determined who would get what land at a secret meeting in 1916. What came out of this meeting was the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and it basically divided up the Middle East scramble for Africa style. Syria and Lebanon were given to the French, while Iraq and Jordan were given to the British. And they determined that Palestine, because of its religious significance, would be governed by an international regime, whatever that meant. The problem with this was that the British had also been wheeling and dealing on the side. As they were stoking Arab nationalism and rebellion in Saudi Arabia, they did so by promising the Arabs that they would get control of the land after they defeated the Ottomans. Although they weren't specific about what land they would make sure the Arabs got, it was widely assumed by the Arabs that this included protection of the land most important to all of Islam, Palestine. But at the same time, other British diplomats were promising Palestine to another group of people, the Zionist movement pushing for a Jewish state. Uh-oh. Also, when the British and the French determined the new states they would administer, they did not take into account local rulers, ethnicity, or religious sects. Just like in Africa, they just drew lines on a map and said, you're Syria now. Needless to say, this has caused a lot of problems ever since. The other major event that came out of World War I was the Treaty of Versailles. This was the peace treaty with Germany that formally ended the war, and it was a hot mess. In 1919, 27 nations who had in some way supported the Allies gathered in Paris for the peace conference. Germany obviously was not invited. The conference was dominated by the imperial powers of Britain, France, and the U.S., but it's worth mentioning that some colonies sent delegations. India sent people in the hopes that their support of Britain would help them earn more rights and possibly independence. Nope. The Hejaz, a group of Arabs, were there to make sure that they would get the land that had been promised by the British. Uh-oh and a young man from French Indochina named Ho Chi Minh was in attendance, and he left feeling very frustrated that the imperial powers had ignored the plight of his people, but I'm sure it'll be fine. The Treaty of Versailles did two important and bad things. First, it established the League of Nations. This in itself is not bad. It was a noble idea proposed by U.S. President Wilson as a way to avoid future conflict. Unfortunately, after convincing everyone across Europe to join, Wilson brought the treaty back to his own Congress, who refused to sign it. Ah, Congress. Accomplishing nothing since 1919. The League of Nations was a fine idea, but as we'll see, it had no real power. It didn't have an army or peacekeeping force of its own, and without the U.S. involved, it lacked legitimacy. Plus, it refused to let the former central powers like Germany join, so pretty hard to prevent a future conflict with Germany when Germany is not allowed in the negotiating room. But why would there ever be future conflict with Germany, you ask? Surely they learned their lesson, and nothing the Allied powers could ever do in the wake of World War I could cause them to rise up again, more powerful and terrifying than ever. Oh, wait. The other important and bad thing that the Treaty of Versailles did was brutally punish Germany. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have punished Germany at all, but come on, think about it. Who started World War I? Gavrilo Princip of Serbia? Or maybe Austria because they were trying to conquer the Balkans? Sure, Germany played its part and made the first act of aggression, but still. Let me be clear. In the next World War, I will very emphatically accept that Germany was the bad guy. But in the first World War, there really was no bad guy. There wasn't a good side and a bad side. There were just two sides who ended up allied with different people. 
So with that in mind, let's look at what they did to Germany. 1. Germany lost territory in Europe and all of its colonial possessions went to Britain and France. 2. Germany was forbidden to have submarines or an air force. Their navy was limited to six battleships and their army to just 100,000 men. For reference, Germany had 27 battleships before the war and they mobilized 11 million men during World War I. And now they can only have 100,000 soldiers as a defense force. Three, Germany had to pay the equivalent of $33 billion in reparations for damages done during the war. They literally just paid off this last installment in 2010. Seriously. Four, finally, Germany was forced to accept all blame for the war. Now, this is mostly a symbolic move, but it's the worst one for all of the nationalists back home who had been built up before and during the war to believe that Germany was the best and most powerful nation on earth. At this point, it just adds insult to injury. And this insult will be remembered by many of the men who fought for Germany in the trenches. One of them will use this national shame as a rallying cry to unite conservative nationalist elements together in a new, stronger regime. But we'll get to him next episode. So, World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And boy, was Wilson wrong. Europe walked into the war willingly, They all had a lot to prove, territories to gain, and they believed that their nation's military was so powerful they would all be home in a few weeks. Four years later, the global landscape is shifting. The last two great empires, Russia and the Ottomans, have fallen apart, and colonists who shipped off to fight for their mother country in the name of nationalism are coming back home and thinking, nationalism seems pretty great. Maybe we should have that here too. Shut up, Africans. And Germany, the rising young country, has had its national pride run into the ground. In Europe and the United States, everyone retreats back into their protectionist holes, hoping that if they just don't get involved in foreign affairs, then another war couldn't happen. And boy, was everyone wrong. To be continued. For notes, pictures, and a transcript of today's episode, check out www.antisocialstudies.org. Join me next time on Antisocial Studies as we explore World War II, or who is supposed to be watching Germany? Don't forget that if you like what I'm doing, please subscribe so you'll know when the next episodes are up. And if you really like what I'm doing, then go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give me a review. Thanks. Thanks.